Stars were hot. Stars are one of the best teams in the NHL this season. Toronto went into their barn and established play early. I kind of dominated the first period. And then, yeah, just, just looked like the, the far superior team. They got Bertuzzi going. Nylander did his normal brilliant thing. Morgan Riley looked great. But the big one, well, there's two big ones for me today. Quickly, that I, I like doing Leafs talk right after the games. Subscribe to the podcast and review it. But I like being able to have the the sleep on it after. And a, and a couple of quick thoughts on the Leafs after I really think about what stuck with me. And there was two things from that game. One is, and, and I'll probably do this as a topic next week with some people. Maybe I'll end up talking to an insider about it. Maybe I'll just do it with a guest. But it's it's really it's really starting to feel like the Leafs made... Um, another mistake with William Nylander. It's like the first GM didn't want to pay him the money, right? And they ended up coming to this agreement. But but the Leafs screwed it up. He sat out a large portion of a season. He was never right when he came back. And he ended up getting the money that he kind of wanted, right? It It was there. People looked at it now and say, wow, what a bargain of a deal. But... Nylander got his money, and it was a little bit more than the Leafs wanted to pay. They were fighting over just, you know, very small figures. And now I wonder how this one is going to play out because Nylander's agent has never said that they won't negotiate in season. This is a scenario where they're open 24-7, all right? Leafs can send a call down. They can talk to William Nylander whenever the hell they want. He's a guy who wants over $10 million. And all of us, I won't say all of us, most of us, a lot of, there's a lot of Nylander lovers out there that would give him anything that he wants at any time. They'd probably just show up, rub his feet if he asked him to. But a lot of us thought, hey, you got to hold firm here. You got to, you can't just let these guys do it again to you, right? And lately I've been saying, hey, they should just capitulate. They should just give him the money because he's going to get it. And these three guys are different. And then you have to try to break this cycle whenever the the next crop of players, the next crop of RFAs come up. The Matthew Nyes of the world, the the Fraser Mintons of the world, whatever happens this offseason with some of the blue line guys. Like you, you have to be tougher in your negotiations with guys who aren't the big three, right? And, and even saw that reflected with the Morgan Riley contract. So I'm not worried that it's going to extend beyond those guys. But those three guys are going to want their big bags of money. But I am curious, you know, Morgan Riley after the game last night, he's he calls William Nylander one of the best players in the world, which he obviously is. But he's revered by his peers. He's creating every single night. There's a, there's a breathtaking play every single night from William Nylander. And... Yeah, I, I think it's it's fair to say you could make a, a pretty solid case that he has been the Leafs' best player so far this season. Like, I, I've liked Matthews a little bit more. I think Matthews does a little bit more for this team. But if, if you told me I think Nylander's been the best player on the Leafs this season, I wouldn't go rolling my eyes and ask to leave the conversation. I would say, eh, he's been really good. He's been really good. I like Matthews a little more. But maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's me that... That won't give up on my thing. I, I don't know. It's a it's a coin toss. It's a coin toss with somebody who just got, by the way, a massive contract extension on a four-year deal. So I, I just 
I think we all thought that 10 million was the absolute maximum ceiling that no way he was even going to get that anyways. Let's look at the the Meyer contracts fairly. Let's look at some of the other deals around the NHL and compare them to what William Nylander is. But we've said it all along. These three guys compare each other to to one another. They compare each other. It's Matthews compares himself to Marner. Marner compares himself to Matthews. Nylander's compared himself to Marner. They're, they're going in circles here in terms of who gets what and who who deserves what when it comes to money. And so maybe this is overstated. Maybe this is over-exaggerated. Maybe this is just, you know, Friday, October 27th, Leafs takes. But I, <laughs> the way that he's playing, I just – I wonder if it's, it's take two with William Nylander where – they held out. They didn't want to give him the deal. Obviously, he's playing in the season this time around, but they, they held out. They said, no, not you. They, we're not giving you the money right away. We're, we're going to see. We're going to fight over this. You're wrong. We're, we're right. And then they go into the season, and then halfway through, he ends up getting a contract extension. And it's for way more money than they thought it was going to be and more than we thought it was going to be. I don't think it'll be astronomically more, but yeah, it sure feels like he's... He's played this pretty well. And who should be surprised? Uh, I'm going to have Ben Nicholson-Smith on in two seconds. Oh, uh, last leaf lot is, hey, um, this is Joe Walsnet. This is Joe Walsnet. He's not going to play on Saturday. They've already scheduled Samsonov, which is smart. He's going he's gonna to get in the lineup. That's great. Big fan. I uh, think he's going to be fine. Samsonov is a perfectly capable goaltender. But, yes, Joe Wall has been phenomenal. He's off to one of the best starts in franchise history. So, yeah, you're clearly going to play him the following game. He's, he's going to get back in the net against the LA Kings. And then he's probably going to get the net again against the Bruins. So, yeah, I, I, I just think that he's playing so well that as of right now, Sam, Samsonov is the backup. It, he'll get back in. They'll split more games. But I, I, I just think that's already determined. Quick, 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 quick thing before BNS. I just got to say, I, I stayed up late last night to watch KD versus LeBron, and it was fun. It was really fun. KD was just pouring it in for three quarters. He was just uh, completely unstoppable, and he's carrying uh, just a group of players that, uh, me as an NBA fan, I'm, I'm like, who? I don't, I don't know who that is it, on the Suns because they're, they're missing some players. You got, man, you really hope Yusuf Nurkic doesn't foul out because otherwise they're leaning, you know, they're leaning on a 100-year-old, 6'2", overweight Eric Gordon. To, to try to help them out. He's playing 30 minutes for them. I'm like, oh my God, this team is so thin. I don't know who Jordan Goodwin is. I learned who he was last night, though. Okay? Watch this game. But LeBron, man, LeBron, age 39 season, just t- takes over in a fourth quarter. And, and it's just, it's incredible to watch a guy at, at his age. He's supposed to have this minutes thing that they're putting on him where they say, hey, LeBron, you're not playing over, I think it's something like 30 minutes maybe for them. You're not supposed to play over this. And he just goes out on the floor and he just dominates in the fourth quarter. They rested him. He basically took the first three quarters of the game off and he turned it on in the fourth. But if you're a Lakers fan, like our boy Armin is, that that's the only path forward for the Lakers, is being able to rest LeBron James throughout the season, have a team that's good enough around him that can just hang around for a couple of quarters and then hope to just... Basically, remember the Fast and Furious movies where they hit the the, the NOS button? The NOS, that's what it was, right? NOS? NOX? Whatever. 
Nas? Yeah, I'm an idiot. I don't know what any of this stuff is. I'm not a car guy. <laughs> Anyways, they hit that button, and boom, it was the turbo boost, and that's how you won the race. That's basically the Lakers this year. But my God, I just, I, I'm blown away by LeBron. And, may, and maybe this doesn't last, and maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't something sustainable throughout the year, but, oh, I, I just got the, I got the deep LeBron James appreciation last night of what a great player he is and how incredible this career is. And yes, Kareem did it late into his career where he was just, you know, a dominant player into his late 30s. But the way LeBron does it with the athleticism of just thinking like, you need to get this guy the ball and he's going to be able to get to the basket this way, this effortlessly at the end of the game is, is it's truly special. It's truly incredible. Anyways, it's truly special, truly incredible. It's Ben Nicholson Smith's latest article. Wow, 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 wow. Guy goes and writes out 10 different hypothetical scenarios for the Blue Jays offseason. Ben Nicholson Smith at the letters, MLB editor for Sportsnet. What's up, brother? How are we doing? So... You, you know, you know the off season. You're supposed to just go relax and piss off for a while. Go enjoy some sun. Go just do the things, your hobbies, and just relax. You know what? Um, I think I'm going to get there in time, but uh, that time is not now, as you uh, as you saw with uh, with that article. I really did go off the deep end with this. Like I started and basically couldn't stop looking at these scenarios. And so, yeah, here we are looking at 10, um, 10 possibilities. The thing is, like, you could keep going. I, you know, you could have done – there could be 50. Like, it, within the Blue Jays front office, of course, like, it's endless. There, the number of possibilities is, you know, you, once you start going, you kind of start seeing how the pieces fit together, and really there's no limit to how many scenarios you could look at. Yeah, sure. I, it, and 10 was a lot. Like, this is – this was quite something to to read. Like I, I'm looking it over, and I'm just like, "Holy crap! This is this is so many things that are flying at me." And and I, what I like about it is that okay, sure, there were hypotheticals that you threw out there, like Shohei, right? And like, hey, whatever. But no, but it's it's a good primer for the way that these guys are going to have to look at this offseason, right? There's, there's not one clear thing about the Blue Jays that needs to get done. And, and I know some of you are thinking, oh, no, they, they absolutely need more offense. Sure, sure. But there are scenarios here where they, you know, double down on pitching. There are scenarios here where they even go further with the run prevention. So uh, you outline how much money they're going to have to spend. And I, I just think that there's a lot here that we can go over. And so I wanted to go over it, especially ahead of the World Series, where everyone's talking about Gabriel Moreno and how the, the Jays are going to build a team uh, that can get here. Okay, so 40 to $50 million in payroll. Um, Shohei Otani's not going to happen. But who is your favorite target outside of Shohei? To me, Bellinger is the one who has the most upside. Like, it's actually like one of the things that I realized in looking at the free agent class is there's not a lot of high-impact players unless you look at the pitching side, which, again, the Jays don't really need pitching in the same way they need offense. So, you know, great. There's Blake Snell. There's Aaron Nola. There's Yamamoto. doesn't necessarily fit the Blue Jays' biggest needs. So you start looking around at the position players and who could actually help this team. There's not a ton of guys. And Cody Bellinger is clearly the best option, not named Shohei Otani. And he's going to be expensive. I mean, I think he'll probably get a seven-year deal, um, AAV, north of $20 million. So that's a pretty substantial commitment. But this is a guy who's still in his late 20s. If you're looking at ways to just improve your overall team and position player core and have someone who could hit second or hit cleanup for you, I mean, Bellinger's on a very short list of guys who fits that description. Here's my thing with Bellinger, though. Haven't they tried to go down this path multiple times, and he's basically indicated like he's not going to be a Blue Jay? Who's the 
was it Andrew Heaney, the pitcher for Texas, that the Jays yeah. tried him like three straight off seasons, and he went. I think there was a piece that went up on Sportsnet.ca this year where he went. Um, my wife and I feel bad because Toronto tried to get us here so many times. And she she actually said, "Are you sure?" Turning them down multiple times. Isn't Bellinger in that group of players that they, they've just pursued over and over and over again? And they can't get anything done with. Yeah, to some extent. They did have interest in him last offseason, so I think there's a little bit of that. But at the same time, like we could have said that about Kevin Gosman before he went to Toronto and, and ended up actually signing here. So I think at a certain point, if you offer enough money, these guys will come here. And, you know, Bellinger's going to have a lot of competition because, you know, the Cubs probably should retain him. And there are other teams out there that would really benefit from adding a Cody Bellinger, obviously. Um, but if you're looking for like a one impact guy, I think he's it because otherwise you start getting, you go down the list and it's like you get to Josh Bell and you get to Reese Hoskins really fast. And that's okay. I mean, those guys are, those guys can help you. They can win. They can be really good players on a, on a world series caliber team. No question. But I I still think if you're looking at a guy who kind of profiles, as more of a, you know, top of the order, long-term piece, then Bellinger is pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, this this is where the the off season starts to get tricky for me, right? Is you mentioned that there's not a lot of free agents, and I look at Bellinger and I say that's awesome. It, and and you outlined it even the piece that he had a really good season, but there's there's at least some underlying numbers there that are say it was maybe not, it shouldn't have been as good as it ended up being. And you're saying, all right, how much of your forty to fifty forty to fifty million dollars in payroll would you have to give to the one guy who's a big ticket free agent? when you have multiple needs. And so from, from my vantage point anyways, it's, just, it's, it's difficult for me to envision that this front office does that type of approach where they go in and say, we're doing another big ticket free agent, especially after the way that it's worked with you know George Springer, for example, right? And yeah, it's kind of worked with Ryu. They got more innings. He had one really good season, but that one didn't really pan out. Um, Semyon was great, the one-year deal, but I don't think that you're going to get you're not going to get a guy like Bellinger on a one-year contract. I don't see it. But yeah, it just feels like there's too many holes for them to give Bellinger like the the Godfather deal where they go over the top and say, here's the, the massive amount of money to make this happen, right? Yeah. Well, because they really do have a lot of holes. This is the other thing. Yeah. It's like looking at this roster, and uh, you know, I understand. Like, first of all, I understand some people just don't want to even want to think about it yet, and that's totally fine. And and I think like. You know, there there's definitely got to be an acknowledgement that this team is not good enough right now. Like, in no way am I saying that the Blue Jays are where they need to be. In fact, they're like five or six players, like pretty good major league players away from where they need to be. At the same time, I really think they're going to get there. I think that you look at the last offseason, they acquired five or six players. Offseason before that, they acquired five or six players. It's doable. When you have money, when you have 40 $45, 50000000 to spend, you can trade some prospects. You can trade some major league players. So it's an achievable goal. Um, but they have a lot of work to do because they need to address their left field, third base, second base, DH, probably something on the pitching staff too. You can't totally ignore pitching this offseason. So that's like four positions plus mm-hmm. the pitching staff. So there's some real work they have to do here. Yeah, I think that that was one of the most that was the most eye popping things about the article. And again, people should go read it. Um, it's up on Sportsnet.ca right now. Um, the ten hypothetical scenarios that are mapped out for the Jays off season. It's just that that is just the amount of ways that this team could go 
And that wasn't even like you didn't even have any trade Vlad scenarios, right? Like you didn't go crazy, crazy with any of these things. You didn't, you know, you did trade your way to the top and you had Espinal for cash and like every single one of these <laughs> things. Like it was so great reading this article because it's like, here's five things that could happen and then Espinal for cash at the, at the very bottom. I loved, yeah. I loved that part. I mean, of the I'm piece. not trying to I, look like Santiago Espinal. I, I hope he has a good career. I'm not trying to steer sure. anyone here. Like it, but at the same time, look, you look at his value, it's, there's not a lot there. So, no, just, know. you know, just given that he's going to make a couple million in arbitration. So, yeah, like, I, you know, I looked at – I traded a lot of guys, like, in these yeah. scenarios. And clearly, I, you know, if anyone's li- if any Jays are listening to your podcast, J.D., this is not meant as a personal thing, obviously. Uh, but relax, it's basically – you're trading Yusei Kikuchi. You're trading – you know, I traded Nate Pearson, like, four times. I traded yeah, Alex Manoa, like, four times. Like, yeah. you know, it's just – it's you got to trade something if you want to get better. And yeah. so I think you have to be open to trading these guys. And no one in the Jays front office is going to come out and say it. But, of course, they're open to trading a bunch of these guys, too. They have to be. you got to get better. Yeah. yeah. I do want to get to the Manoa thing eventually. And uh, I, But do you think that Vlad is even available for calls? Like, what, what's your read on the Vlad situation? Because, yeah, you, you didn't – it was kind of notable that you didn't put one Vladdy trade in there. Yeah. I don't think they're trading Vladdy. I don't think they're extending Vladdy. I think that it's status quo. Um, that's just my opinion based on the conversations that I've had to this point. Um, look, if someone calls them or when someone calls them, I don't think they're going to hang up the phone. They will have a willingness to you know, listen on that possibility. Um, but Vlad Jr. is entering his age 25 season. His numbers, analytically speaking, were not as bad as you might think. Um, there's still a huge amount of potential in this guy. He still is someone who takes the field 150, 155 times a season. He's going to be extremely motivated, not only to bounce back from a disappointing season, but to position himself for a free agency, which is now a couple of years away. And so he needs to perform um, for a lot of different reasons. I think that's the guy you want on your team. I think 30 teams want Vlad Jr., and I think some of those teams will probably approach the Blue Jays, and I can almost guarantee that at some point in December we'll see a rumor that the Blue Jays at least listening to offers on Vlad Jr., but mm-hmm. I just don't think it happens, nor do I think they extend him. I think that this is status quo for Vladdy, and I think we're going to see two really, really good seasons from him as a Blue Jay. Buddy, we're an off-season removed from uh, a lot of Bo Bichette rumors, right? The idea that Bo was at least someone that you could call on. So I, I just don't think Vladdy is going to be completely off the table. But you're right. It's just it's a very, very tough needle to thread for the Blue Jays to make a Vladimir Guerrero Jr. trade where you remove the, the guy who is, frankly, still the face of your franchise. Like, you go down to the Rogers Center, and what do you see most? It's, it's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. jerseys, like, he by, by far. Like, and it's, it, it's, frankly, not close. Like, he is the number one face to kids. He's the, the guy that most adults know, most casual fans know. Removing him and placing someone in there, like a two-for-one or some kind of deal, like that doesn't really work. Uh, it's, just, it's hard for me to figure out what a Vladdy trade would look like where you're trying to win now, you're trying to win in the future, you're able to sell some of the box office appeal for him. It, to, me it's, to me, it's not really something that's going to happen. I just keep viewing it as a point of curiosity because for the first part you said there, which is, hey, if you're not extending him, then this at least has to be the offseason where you gauge some of the interest. And if you're not 
convinced that, or sorry, if you are convinced that you have this many holes to fill and you do want to try to make a splashy acquisition like a Cody Bellinger, then maybe one of the other moves you have to make is is a very, very difficult trade. But anyways, um, the, the more realistic one and the one that you did put in a lot was Manoa, right? So th- there were multiple Manoa trade scenarios. I don't need to talk about the Pearson ones because it was kind of like, yeah, all right, if they trade Pearson, I don't think anybody, I don't think the Jays are getting much back anymore. This certainly isn't the, what was it, Jose Ramirez? He was part of a, a, a trade yeah. that fell through with Nate Pearson at one point. It was like, damn, that would have been nice. Um, but Manoa, he's got the workout videos populating his Instagram feed regularly right now, right? You've seen those? Looks good. He's dominating the gym. He's, he's working out a ton. Um, the Jays' position was it's going to be fine. It's going to be all right. Uh, I've said many times on air that it's really not great when medicals aren't matching up or how a player feels versus how a front office feels that a guy should be. Yeah, I, I guess this is a kind of a two-parter. This one's tough. I, I don't if, but if you had to pay, if you had to put a percentage point on Manoa being traded, do you think that it's closer to fifty-fifty? And if that does happen, have you been able to gauge a bit of? what his value would be around baseball because yeah some of the trades that you had him in i i i was going really that's it yeah right i mean i just don't think and this applies to vlad too now that vladdy's making 20 million next year and probably 30 million the year after that their trade value is just not as high as it was before still a good player still a great player in vladdy's case but his trade value objectively is not as high um for manoa yeah, I think the percent chance, I mean, that jumped to my mind is like 25, which might be the highest on the Jays. Like, I don't think that there's anyone on there that's an absolute lock to get traded um, on this team. I mean, there are guys that they could move, obviously. Like, I think Espinal is probably on that bubble, um, and Espinal might be 25% as well. But, uh, you know, yeah, I think Manoa would probably be in that range, but his value wouldn't be as high. And this is the thing. What kind of offers are you going to get if you're the Jays for these guys? And to think, you know, a year ago this time, to be, or even eight, nine months ago before the season began, to be thinking about selling Manoa um, or, or even Vlad potentially for way less than, than what they've been um, valued at previously is not an appealing thought. But look, you are where you are. You've got to make the most of the situation. I think the Jays have to be open to it, but they also have to be open to him coming back, being in really good shape, and being a part of their team. So it's going to be a line to walk. I'll put the odds something at 25%. But, you know, they're going to get some low-ball offers for them this offseason. And I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the the lowest of the low-ball offers, they'll be totally comfortable spitting on and then just waiting to see if there's something that's more of a legit fit. Mm. Yeah, I think the fear is just if he forces your hand, right? I don't know that he can, though. I mean, that's good. That's the ultimate situation. I just, I, all I know is that if you do have a super pouty player and a guy who's been as unafraid to be vocal as he is, uh, I, I do think that it, it can at least put some pressure on you as an organization to try to figure it out. And I, I would say that, like, I, I get what you mean by I don't think he can because of the control. I would feel like maybe he can because of his import to the team, right? Like, if he starts to make it public that he's unhappy and he doesn't like this baseball team, and he feels like he's been screwed over in some way or he frankly like doesn't make the team out of camp and has to go down and play ball i i just wonder how sustainable it is going to be for the organization to keep him down there and 
for them to just say, like, yeah, that's fine. And also, like, when we're talking about all these holes, right, that the Blue Jays need to fill, all these positions of need that they're going to have, and, in fact, one of them is going to be pitching, especially if Manoa doesn't show up. It's like, how do you just even carry him without using him to acquire something else that can help you? Like, he's got to yeah. help you in one way or another, I guess, is the way that I'm trying to put this. Is like, either he needs to be on the big league roster, and, and everything's fine, and you're at least using him as a starting pitcher, or you have to use him as a trade piece to bring something back that helps your current roster. Like, Manoa in the minors for another year doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I think at this point, if they were to open camp tomorrow, um, I think he might be the sixth starter still. I think Bowden Francis is ahead of him on the depth chart. So I think it's okay to start the season with him See, in the minors. I think it's okay to start it that way. But you know, we all know how it goes, right? Three weeks in, someone someone's down. He's got to be ready. He's got to be a major league caliber starting pitcher. Like, to me, he has to be ready to, to go at any point. Drop of a hat and no questions asked. It can't be a question of, you know, health. Um, it can't be a question of, you know, readiness. He has to be ready to go. And so that's where, regardless of what happens this offseason, you have to get him into a good mindset. You have to get him into good shape physically. Obviously, he had the cortisone shot last month. Uh, or Sorry, I shouldn't say cortisone, but he had a shot. I think it was a PRP shot um, in his shoulder last month, so still recovering from that. But he's got to get to a point that he is really ready. And clearly, he wasn't there um, at the end of the 2023 season. So they have some work to do internally, whether they keep him or whether they trade him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to me, it's going to be, yeah, probably the, the biggest point of fascination throughout the offseason. Like, I, I want to see how they round out the roster. But, yeah, I'm very curious to see, like, what the next domino is with Manoa. And, yeah, whether or not they can feel like he's, yeah, he can re-jump Bowden Francis, for God's sakes. Who was good? No disrespect to Bowden Francis. But, yeah, Alec Manoa was this team's ace uh, to start the season. And to have him fall behind Bowden Francis in the depth chart is uh, a bit of a tough blow for everybody. Okay, so back to the multiple scenarios here, right? Because we've gone over the big ticket free agent, and it seems like that would be Bellinger. Like, that's the best case scenario. We've gone over what I think is the biggest trade piece that this organization has in Manoa. Um, the, the, the ones that you floated out at the beginning, like, you, you brought big, bring back peanut power. Like, they could revisit Lourdes Gurriel Jr. I, I guess, let's just put it this way. Do you think there's a realistic likelihood of any guys returning? Like, I, I'm talking meaningful players, for the, like bringing back a Lourdes Gurriel, bringing back a Teoscar Hernandez, who maybe they, they had interest in at the deadline, bringing back a Matt Chapman, bringing back a Kevin Kiermeyer. Like, I, I, I'm saying, I'm, I'm extending this to all of the former Blue Jays guys because it, it has felt like a while like none of these dudes are coming back. Yeah, and, you know, the Lourdes one, I, I put it in there, you know, just for, for the sake of exploring that scenario because, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of fun. It's, um, I, I think it's an interesting scenario. Um, he's a good player also, and he's one of the best free agents that's going to be out there. End of the day, I don't think he's coming back. I don't think that you go, hey, uh, you know, December of 2022, we're going to trade this guy and we're going to – um, you know, make our off season in a lot of ways around a trade that sends Guriel out the door. And then, Hey, December of 2023, let's bring him back and let's build this off season around bringing him back. I, I just, I don't think it's particularly likely. I think with Matt Chapman, um, it's more likely that he leaves and they're going to qualify him. He's going to decline. And I think he goes and signs somewhere else, probably for a, a very generous sum. Um, for Teoscar, they did have interest at the deadline. I don't think that we see Teoscar Hernandez come back to the Blue Jays on November the 15th with like some big three-year deal or four-year deal. 
Um, if we're in February and you get to a point that Kay Oscar doesn't have the deal he's looking for and the Blue Jays don't have the deal they're looking for, I mean, you never know. Um, I wouldn't totally cross that one out. I think Kiermaier fits. Like, Kiermaier, just a great baseball player, as I'm sure everyone listening um, saw firsthand this year. So good. I think there are lots of scenarios where he could come back. But um, to me, Kiermaier would be the most likely of those four. Yeah. It's just it's weird with the Kiermaier one because it brings you to the next thing, which is, you know, you wrote one scenario, which is uh, punt on defense and then one that was, you know, double down on defense. And the punt on defense one, as you outlined the piece, like feels really unlikely, but it, it also just ties into what you just said, right? Which is, it's, it's hard for me to believe that this front office is all of a sudden going to deviate from what they thought was so important last offseason, right? And my, like one of, one of my other big questions for the front office and the, the determining factor for this thing is going to be, okay, so you went all in on run prevention last offseason, right? Like you traded Teoscar Hernandez for a relief pitcher. You, you traded your top prospect for a dynamite fielder who, sure, led all left fielders in defensive runs saved and can play center field and all of those different things, right? A, a versatile player. You went out and you signed Kevin Kiermaier. You obviously, you'd already traded for Matt Chapman knowing that it was all about run prevention, run prevention. And, and I know that Shapiro specifically, when he was at the podium, he was talking about how they, they still really needed to deep dive into the team. They really needed to figure out why things were down, numbers were down, blah, 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 blah. But, but pretty clearly, it's like, yes, the run prevention team works if the guys in the middle of your lineup are all studs, right? And, and none of them really were this year. Like, Kirk was down. Uh, chat, uh, at, well, go, go, go through it. Everybody was down, including Boba Shett even slightly. So maybe they're just like, yeah, some of the internal projection is going to tell us that some of those guys uptick a little. But how, how far do you think these guys would potentially deviate from what has been the driving principle around the core of these players the last two off seasons, which is we need to make sure that we keep runs off the board. And now you start swinging it into, we need to make sure that we start adding real power and more bats down the lineup. Yeah. It's, it's the balancing act that they have to figure out here. And it's a tough thing to do. I think end of the day, like if you're in free agency, it's probably easier to acquire bats than it is to acquire um, defensive skills. Um, and, you know, you're, you're talking about generally players that are older. So, you know, you can sign a Tommy Pham. You can sign a J.D. Martinez. You can sign a Reese Hoskins. These guys are not going to help your defense. They're going to hurt your defense, but they're going to help you score some runs. So I think in the context of free agency, you can acquire players who can help you make up some of that ground that you lost. And the Jays have to do that. And this is where there is no scenario that I see where the Blue Jays aren't going out there and signing multiple free agent bats and guys who mash a little bit. And maybe it's a platoon bat like a Tommy Pham or a Jock Peterson. Maybe it's someone who can go in there every day like a Reese Hoskins, like a Cody Bellinger, like a Josh Bell. They have a lot of flexibility when it comes to that. But this is where the trade avenues have to open up a little bit too because you can't go too far to the extreme and get to a point you've got three DHs in there because George Springer too is going to be 35 years old. And you know, yeah, he can play right field. He's going to be penciled in as their starting right fielder, but you can't clog up DH to the point that Springer can never play a game at DH. Um, so I, I think that you've got to acquire some younger players as well. And this is where trading for a position player is appealing if you can do it. And this is where, you know, I included Willie Adamas in there a couple times. There are others that you could look at. Um, of course, on the trade market. But 
you know, to acquire a player who's maybe in his 20s or around 30, put him in there on an everyday basis and get some defense as well as some offense, that's, that's I mean, what you want to do. That's kind of what they did with Matt Chapman, acquiring him two years from free agency. And it, look, it, it, it was pretty disappointing down the stretch offensively for Chapman, but he was a good player. That wasn't a bad trade. No one's regretting that trade. Yeah, you know this. Then this this is the next one, which is all right. Like I, I don't think that they're going to be able to remove really any of the core pieces from the roster. Like we went over Vladdy. They're, they're not going to trade Bo. I, I don't think that Springer is really all that movable um, at yeah. his money. Nor it's like yeah, and it's hard to replace. Like you're a team that's looking for offense, and he's still one of your better offensive players, or you're hopeful that he's going to be one of your better offensive players. Although only an OPS of uh, plus of 102 last year, which. When I was looking at stuff, as even even knowing that he didn't have a great year, seeing that was, yeah, a little eye popping for me, um, and a little terrifying considering that only next year he's he's going to be a year older. Um, but so they had this Gabriel Moreno trade, right? And everyone's just dunking on them for it over and over and over again, myself included. I've got a World Series future that has him as World Series MVP. And if you're a Blue Jays fan, if you're a doomsday person, you're already seeing the scenarios of him just hoisting that World Series MVP trophy and the Diamondbacks winning and Gurriel taking a shot at the Jays saying that, uh, you know, they traded me because I wasn't mature enough, all this different stuff. But do you think that, like, what's your read on the likelihood of moving prospects to help build this team. Like, I, I know they're not as deep, but they still do have names, right? And, and I just wonder if they get a little gun-shy saying, well, now we can't do one of these trades. We've got to figure out something else because th- this is the one... These guys have been, in the past, uh, very prospect-protective. Um, but, yeah, I, I like, wh- where are we at with, like, the Uralvis Martinez's of the world, you know, the Ricky Tiedemann's of the world that at one point felt like he was, like, an untouchable player? How, how realistic is that these guys are used as that, that path to improvement for the roster? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question when you think about, okay, like, could they get gun-shy? Um, and I don't think they will. I think, like, ultimately, Mark Shapiro said this at the end of the season a couple of weeks ago, you got to be comfortable making mistakes sometimes. And he wasn't specifically talking about the Moreno trade. but I No, mean, they said it's a good trade still and that it's going to yeah, take five years to figure out whether yeah. it's good or not. I mean, Shapiro's right on one of those points. It will take five years before we fully know, but I think we would say right now it is not a good trade, and that's okay. You know, like, look, you're not going to make perfect trades, and sometimes you're going to make a trade that helps another team win the World Series. And when the Blue Jays traded Steve Pierce to Boston, he was World Series MVP, and they got Santiago Espinal back, I mean, that's fine. That's, like, maybe even a win-win trade. This one might be a win-lose trade. And those ones happen too, right? Like, you think about the Los Angeles Dodgers. They traded Jordan Alvarez to, to the Houston Astros. Jordan Alvarez, that's like the modern-day David Ortiz. They just gave him up for a reliever, you know? And that's the Dodgers. And, like, that's not to excuse it. Every time you make a bad trade, it's still a bad trade. It's still on your record. It's still not good. Um, but bad trades are part of baseball. And so you've got to go out there and just try to go out there and, and make the next good trade that you can for the Blue Jays. And to answer your question about Tiedemann, about Arelvis, I think you hold Tiedemann. I think you need the pitching depth that you have. And I think that Tiedemann's a guy who could, like there are scenarios where he's pitching in the ALCS next year. And like, Mm -hmm. you're feeling good about that. Um, So I think you hold him. And with Arelvis, I think you're open to trading him, but you're not in a hurry to do it. You're not trading him unless you're getting probably three years or more 
of a really good major league player back, which is what the Jays thought they were getting in Varsho, and it just hasn't fully turned out that way yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're going to need the full five years on this one. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, let's. I don't think it's going to be as bad as that other trade. That that is good perspective though for people who are like, this is the worst trade of all time. <laughs> it's like no, I think that the Jordan Alvarez one is is slightly worse. I think that you would feel slightly worse. Yeah, think about the Cardinals I, trading Adolis Garcia and Randy Rose Rand. So like, and look, those are bad yeah. deals. That's part of the reason the Cardinals aren't good now. But you know, um, yeah, it's not a loan. It's a bad trade. It looks right now like a bad trade, but it is not the only bad trade. No. You know what the difference is, though? If you're a Dodgers fan, you feel like at least your team is still going to go out there and 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 splash a ton of money around, right? Like like when we're, we're talking about the Phillies where the whole time they went, and here comes the $300 million guys. If you're the Blue Jays, you don't. if you're a fan of that team, you don't feel like that's going to happen for you, right? Like you don't think that you're going to be able to cover up those mistakes with money in the same way as some of those other organizations. And St. Louis, I don't think is there in terms of uh, where the Dodgers are at. But yeah, I, I think that's how you sleep at night is if you're a Dodgers fan, you go, okay, cool. We're going to trade Jordan Alvarez. Then we're going to sign Freddie Freeman the next offseason, right? So I, I get how it's a little bit different from the fan base's perspective. But yes, ultimately, uh, this is not one of the worst trades in baseball history. It's just a bad, it's a really, really bad trade for the Blue Jays. And I, I think it's only going to get worse and worse as time goes on. Uh, anyway, um, before you go, I want to kind of rapid fire through some of these other things from the piece that really stuck out. One is you have Jake Fraley on like every one of these things. So I'm just putting him down in pen that Ben Nicholson Smith has essentially heard something. One of your little birds has told you that Jake Fraley is, is going to be a Toronto Blue Jay next year. You know, I'll be fully transparent. No one has said that to me. <laughs> so okay. I just, I honestly, like, I'm just looking at the, the red depth chart. Like they have a lot of outfielders. They have a lot of position players. Um, and I'm looking at, guys who fit i think jay fraley is a good player i like guys who don't strike out a ton that is Uh totally speculative um but yeah i think he's a fit and um ennis actually texted me about that one he was like what like what is going on here with the jay fraley um but yeah um, i think he's a good player yeah no that's you better think he's a good player because if if this was you if you were submitting these 10 proposals to the blue jays front office if you were part of the team they would they would be forced to look deeper into jake fairly uh the other one is dylan carlson from anoa how I, this one also based on inside information how deep do you think that the blue jays went down the the rabbit hole trying to get dylan carlson last off season they would be very very familiar with him from their talks with the cardinals over the catchers right with kirk with jansen um, with moreno so yeah, they would be very, very familiar with all those guys. Um, I think, you know, with – and here's here's another thing that I would like – you know, it, it's it's up to everyone if they want to try to do this because not everyone's necessarily as psycho as me when it comes to this stuff. But, like, try to do it. Try to map out a scenario. Like, if you're, if you're sitting at home and you're thinking, like, hey, what are the Jays going to do, just give it a shot. Like, see if you can map out a scenario that works against left-handed pitching, works against right-handed pitching, gives you a complete bench – stays within that 45 to 50 like just just try it it's kind of it's sort of fun and it's also like not quite as easy as you think so you know with some of these deals like the carlson from manoa i'm like to me it's kind of fair the jays might say no the cardinals might say no i don't know like maybe both sides would say no but it's sort of fair you have players who are at a, approximately a similar stage in their career they have some risk they have some upside and the Cardinals need pitching, the Jays need bats. So that's mm-hmm. all I'm, I'm saying with these things is it's sort of gesturing in a direction. 
And whether it happens or not, these are not predictions, but it's kind of fun, or for me at least, it was sort of fun to at least move in a direction and see, does this fit? Could this make sense as a possibility? You should, uh, you should, well, I guess you are the MLB editor. I don't know if we have the capability, but now you're making me think like, you guys should have put together a, a choose your own adventure page <laughs> yeah. for the off season, right? Like the NBA's trade machine where you get the $50 million or you get to like $46 million and you've got to try to figure out how to make some of these puzzle pieces work. Because you're right, this, and, and I don't know how much time this took you. It feels like it would have taken, uh, yeah, a decent chunk of time, right? Uh, yeah. so there's a lot here. There was a lot of moving pieces in this piece. But you're right. I, this is why I want to talk to you, and this is why I really wanted. This is the main theme of this conversation: is this off season is really tricky for the Blue Jays. They are trying to win a World Series. They have tons of holes on the roster, and some of the biggest question marks that they have about the team can't be resolved in the off season. And that's the stuff surrounding yeah their core three players plus one of their most important assets in Alec Manoa and every. And I don't mean this as like you did a, a bad job because it's clear that this is a really good work. But this is the, the tough part for me. When I read every single one of these scenarios outside of like the dream one, right? Right, Which we all kind of just, yeah, yeah, they're not getting Heimer Candelario and Shohei Otani, right? <laughs> yeah. There's so many scenarios here where I went, I don't know if I like that team. And yeah. I don't think that's good for the Blue Jays. Right. Like, yeah, it's not as though you end up with like these, these epic, super splashy scenarios for the most part. Oh. Um, you know, like to me, if you end up with like Yamamoto is another one, the, the Japanese right-hander, 25 years old coming over this off season, like he might sign for 150, 170 million. Um, mm-hmm. I think he would be great. I think that would be an awesome way to build your off season and get a couple bats like boom, that, that to me is kind of appealing. Um, but Look, like it might end up being Reese Hoskins. Or here's the other thing. Like Scott Boris. Think about Scott Boris and his role in this. He represents Bellinger, Hoskins, um, obviously Ryu, Chapman, Josh Bell, a lot of these guys. So let's say the Blue Jays are interested in Bellinger. Scott Boris keeps them involved, keeps them bidding, and maybe holds them off a little bit, makes them wait a little bit on Hoskins and, and Bell. And then Bellinger goes back to the Cubs. And then it's like, okay, Boris is slow playing it. And okay, all of a sudden you know, Hopkins goes back to the Phillies and the Jays are sitting there like, all right, like, I guess we're doing this Josh Bell thing. And that's going to be the big off season addition. And how do they supplement around that? Like they have to navigate relationships in this with their own guys, with different agents. It's why the off season to me is like super intriguing is there's so much at stake, like you're saying, and they need to make sure that they're kind of getting what they need in this. And, you know, emerging from this as a team that can actually win a few playoff rounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, the, 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 and this is kind of how it's felt the last couple of off-seasons. Like, everyone loves to point to, hey, the, the Blue Jays got George Springer and they got Hunjin Ryu. It's like, well, they got Hunjin Ryu at the very end of free agency, right? Like, they, they, they really had tried the whole bunch of options, and then he was sort of there, and, and we were all pretty surprised that he ended up with the Blue Jays. And then the George Springer one was they just went over the top on years. Like they went into that place that was really uncomfortable for all the other teams. The Blue Jays deemed that he was the guy 
and they went out and got him. And Gossman, to me, is like the best free agent signing they've had, but it took, like you mentioned, multiple years of their interest and pursuit of him to be able to finally land the player. And and it's not that these guys shouldn't get credit for the free agent signing splashiness, but it was a pretty unique window where they had a ton of money with a, a roster that was relative, like basically costing them very little money. They had to kind of spend it. There wasn't a lot of competition around them in terms of what they could do. Um, yeah, they've done the Chris Bassett thing, which was nice. Like, that's a good free agent signing. I wouldn't say that that's one that's massively over the top. But, yeah, it has felt a little bit like we've disregarded some of the, the misses in free agency and the domino effect that that's had with this roster in terms of the way that they've had to gear down and do the secondary plan. And, and that was sort of always my issue with the Dar- Dalton Varsho trade was, like, it, it felt like they missed on some guys in free agency. They missed on some of their their bigger plans and then they went well we have to do something and all of a sudden they're trading their top prospect for uh, a hope and a prayer that Dalton Varsha was going to be a better offensive player like a guy that could start the season in their four hole and, and I'm worried about that potential for this offseason given that it's just like yeah that the options are even thinner than ever before and by the way before you go I got to say like in all of this the the real what if is just to me, after watching this, these, these baseball playoffs and you know him put up historic numbers now, he's getting close to the most runs batted in in postseason. It's just how close they got with Kyle Schwarber. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Schwarber, um, Corey Seager, that's another one, right? Yeah. Where they wanted Corey Seager, they were pretty serious about him. Um, Semyon, too. I don't think they were ever going to re-sign Semyon after he had that amazing season, but they did have legit interest in Seager that offseason. Yeah. So, you know, to me... You have to react to the class in front of you. It's just like anything, you have to react to the challenge in front of them. And so for the Jays, this isn't a great free agent class for position players. So you can't force it. You can't make it one. Spending $100 million on a second-tier free agent doesn't make that free agent a better player. It's still the same player. So I sort of look at the opportunity here, and I think maybe you add a back-end pitcher. Maybe you add a guy like Reese Hoskins um, on a one- or two-year deal to kind of bounce back from the ACL, put him at DH. Maybe you trade for a Willie Adamas as an everyday player who's in his prime and motivated in a walk here. You round out the bench, and you count on guys like Vlad Jr. and Manoa to turn it around, because, and Kirk too, and Springer too, because regardless of what happens with these outside additions, if the Jays are going to improve, which they have to, obviously, last year was a failure, we can't say that enough, it's still true, then they are going to need improvement from their core players. They're going to need Vlad Jr. to step it up. So that means this offseason has to be productive for him, for Manoa, for Springer, for Kirk, for any of those guys who disappointed in 2023. Yeah, I'm totally with you, buddy. Um, it just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fan base that feels like they need a splash. And I don't, yeah, I don't know how big the ripples are going to be here. <laughs> yeah. It might be a little bit more quiet than some people are anticipating after such a yeah tumultuous season. Anyways, uh, go read the piece. It's up there. And then, yeah, like Ben said, go do your own mapping out of the offseason if uh, you've got that time ahead of the, the World Series tonight. Uh, ben Nicholson-Smith at the Letters, uh, MLB editor for Sportsnet. And again, uh, mapping out the offseason of 10 hypotheticals for the Toronto Blue Jays up on Sportsnet.ca. Thanks for making time, brother. You got it. Thanks, J.D. See you, pal. Um, so yeah, that's just where I'm at. This is this is one of the smartest guys that it, it uh, just writes about baseball. Period. Is just around baseball. Like you know, I I love reading Ben's stuff because he puts just a ton of thought into it. And this is why I really like this piece, and why I would say that people should go take a peek at it. Is like, yeah, it's 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 sort of a 
what is it with the uh, grief, right? It's the acceptance is the final is the is the final one. There's like the bargaining, the denial. And and I think that a lot of people with this Blue Jays off season are gonna be in different phases of grief. And then when you read this piece, there's I, I don't want to say acceptance because that's gonna be at the end of it, but it's getting kind of close to that in terms of realizing what this is going to be for this team. Like, yeah, I don't think that the massive, incredible signing or trade is going to happen. Like, even if Cody Bellinger happens, that would be a real, real, real shock to me. Like a truly, like BNS had him at a seven-year, $168 million contract, which is a massive figure. But then you also have to factor in that and Ben's plugged in. He's he's a guy that he doesn't write these things without really having a good understanding of what the contract could be. But let's just remember last offseason with some names that went for way more than we all thought they were going to and how a guy like Cody Bellinger, as one of the only real swing pieces this offseason, yeah, the, I would say the likelihood of that being under is far less than the likelihood of it being over. Anyway, um don't worry. There's more Gabriel Moreno talk. Uh, Eric Kratz, who used to be a catcher here and does a really, really, really good show on a show called Fel- Elf Territory. Uh, he's also an author. He is going to join us next to help us better understand, yeah, what what Gabriel Moreno truly is and how special he can be, but also Hopefully he can sell us on this World Series uh, outside of just our misery. That's next. Okay, so big hour. Going to have Eric Kratz, former LMB catcher, host of Foul Territory, and author of Tau of a Backup Catcher, on in a few minutes. Uh, A guy who lived in the Rogers Center Hotel for a while, which had to be cramped. I got to know how long he actually lived there for. Um, he's coming up in a few minutes. And then Nikhil Alexander-Walker. As the, he's called in our group chat whenever we're for Nah. Nah. There's a lot of nah talk in the group chat. We taped uh, his, his interview. Uh, Canadian guy. Talked to him about, yeah, playing for Team Canada. The hype around the program. Just him returning to the country to play. And a guy that, hey... Uh, this is this is going to become definitely one of the themes of, uh, I think, sports for the next couple of years as we, we see more of these player pods, is right fits and fans having a real better understanding and a look under the hood of, hey, when is it actually the player? Um, but sometimes realizing, hey, you know that guy that you thought was really talented and that you really did believe in? Mm, yeah, his situation was actually pretty crap. And he didn't really have a chance to thrive there. And bouncing around or having a coach that didn't really care about him or a GM that didn't care that he was someone else's draft pick, uh, yeah, that 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 can really impact certain guys. And I think that what we saw from Nikhil Alexander-Walker this past year where he was awesome for Canada at the World Cup, like truly, truly awesome, that, yeah, I think he has more to give in the NBA with his defense, his size, his length, the shooting, all of it. If If that can start to hit in a place where... Yeah, there's a some more faith, which is what happened with him with the signing, that you, you could end up seeing, yeah, uh, real, real growth potential with that player. And yeah, Canada, Canada basketball, by the way, yeah, 28 guys in the NBA this season. 28. It says 26, but it's 28 because, yeah, Chris Boucher and Chris Duarte. These guys are both Canadians. 28 Canadians in the NBA. 
a just unbelievable thing. All right, quickly, before we get to Kratz. Show me something Sunday. It's Friday. You know I got I to gotta tell you the team that I want to see the most from this weekend. There's really only one game. Like, there's a couple games that are fine, I guess. Like, sort of want to see Dallas-LA. Kind of an important game for Dallas to just dominate after what we saw in the, the last Rams game with TJ Watt. Like, if, if you're Dallas and Dak Prescott, you're at home. You, you want to beat that Rams 3-4 and four team that, that looks a little flawed. And yeah, the refs and blah, 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 blah. But that's not really it. I don't think that the New England bounce back is going to happen to a severe degree, so I don't really care as much about the Miami game. God, Colts... Colts-New Orleans might be the most boring game. <laughs> like, it looks so sexy because it. I've seen that in a Super Bowl, and it looks beautiful on the NFL.com page. Like, when you just see the two teams... And I just, yeah, woof. I, I don't think I'll be tuning into too much of that one. It's kind of the, yeah, Arthur Smith faces his former team, the Titans. Can the Falcons take a step? Are the Titans going to disappear? Titans I actually kind of want to watch because they're going to play two quarterbacks apparently. <laughs> I watched in, I, I saw clips of Rabel getting defensive, being super mean to a reporter, and then realizing he was being super mean and trying to dial it back and then fumbling through this whole thing that is going to be Mackey's nightmare over the, the coming weekend, which is they're, they're going to try to play two quarterbacks, I guess. They've got it figured out. They're going to have two QBs. But, oh, the game, the game of the weekend is 100%. It's easy. It's not Jacksonville, Pittsburgh. It's the Niners. It's the Niners and Bengals. Bengals coming off a bye week. We get to see how healthy Joe Burrow looks, whether or not he's on the the right page with his receivers, whether that offense is going to be able to pass protect. Niners, that was the, the story to me of that that loss. It wasn't the Brock Purdy stuff. He's out, which is huge because like, we'll get to that in a second. But Niners pass rush was not getting home. There was nobody. Bosa was playing no force. Kirk Cousins played well played really well, did get the ball out, but that was one of the worst offensive lines in all of football, and they just they, they couldn't get a sack when it counted, and it put a lot of pressure on Brock Purdy to make plays at the end of the game, and yeah, he made a couple of mistakes, but yeah, anyways, he's concussed, so we get Sam Darnold, who, he's a weird guy because a, a lot of NFL people still believe in him. He, he's got like some of that Geno Smith smoke, where when Geno was floating around after the Giants stop, People believed, like, hey, if he lands in the right situation, he could be good. And, yeah, me as a Seahawks fan, I think Geno's fine, but not great. And I think that Darnold, there's there's some belief anyways that he could be better than Brock Purdy, which would be tough for our boy Chase McDaniel because, yeah, you can't have a, the backup come in and look better than this guy. But, yeah, I can't wait to see what what he looks like with this offense and whether or not it, it, it seems as though it's taken a step and – Yes, this this is by far the biggest game of the weekend. Cincinnati, if they fall to three and four, and then you look at their schedule that's coming up, it's it's a nightmare. And San Francisco, if they lose three state games yeah, right ahead of the trade deadline, this is a team that traded for Christian McCaffrey and has more cap space than any other team in the NFL going into this next week. So yeah, maybe they maybe they get a little bit more desperate. Anyways, actually let's let's roll Nikhil Alexander Walker because yeah we we've got a busy hour so we'll push Kratz back. Uh, let's let's get the Nikhil Alexander Walker tape, and let's roll that. Uh, we got that, Armin. 
All right. Here's Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Timberwolves guard. Very excited for our next guest, Timberwolves, and of course, Team Canada guard. Winner, 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 Nikhil Alexander-Walker. What's up, buddy? Not much. How you guys doing? We're doing all right, man. So congrats on the new contract. Congrats on a great summer. Although, how much of that money from that new contract is going to tickets for the season opener here in Toronto? Uh, great chunk, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Tell you that much. It was, it was a pretty penny. All yeah. worth it. Yeah, I'm sure all worth it. But you're like, man, did the season have to open in Toronto? Like, did it have to be opening night? <laughs> Would have been nicer if it was like a Wednesday in the middle of the season, you know? I mean, this is like the second time it's happened to me. So, I know. like, honestly, it, it's got to be for a reason, you know. I guess I, I'd hope. Yeah, I like that. You're just like, it's got. Don't worry. The, the, it's the universe. The universe has a plan for this. And that's how you're <laughs> yeah, like explaining. At some, at some point, it's not. <laughs> yeah, you're explaining the losses. Yeah, to the cosmic. Yeah, man, you did. So you did start your career here. There, obviously, that game, you know, would have been a tough one. This one, you know, same kind of thing. But what is the process like in terms, of, like, be real here? Who? Because like you're a Vaughn Secondary School guy. You were born here. There's got to be a line in the sand, right, with the tickets, where you're just like, can't do it. Like, is it a fa- does it does the a family member get cut off? Like, is there a cousin cut off line? Is there that friend who was like, man, I was your best friend in grade eight. What do you mean you're gonna hold out on the ticket for me? I think it's very it's it's very relative to like the relationship I have with the person and mm. and uh I think now as I as I get older and understand and appreciate the people who have been there for me I've been through like a lot of ups and downs in my career and these guys have the ones that are coming have definitely had or played a role and continue to play a role in supporting me and the ones who just don't make the cut, unfortunately, uh, you know, like, uh, it's sad to say, but those w- weren't the people who may, they may have been there to start, but they weren't always there or actively uh, encouraging. So, like, you, you kind of get to start to get the feel for things for when people do things to benefit themselves. And you can pick up on it, and it's, it's easy to kind of go about it in a way that's going to be best for me, so forth, and just go from there. Dude, that's honestly one of the biggest things about growing up, right? Is just realizing the people, yeah. like that your time becomes more valuable and you want to give your energy to the people who give it back. And so when it's just like the people that start showing up and asking for that energy and it's like, take, 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 then it starts to become an easier decision. And you start to get that clarity. I think the more you become a man, honestly, like, so yeah, good. 100%. That's uh, I'm glad that you're feeling that. But, yeah, okay, so I know this is, like, the stereotypical question for a guy like you who's coming back home, but, yeah, is there something particular? Like, I know you spend off-season time here and everything, so it's not like, you know, you get to be here once a year. But, yeah, what what does it mean to you when you get to play on this floor and you get to show up, and especially now where it's like you're really starting to settle into your career? You're in a place where, you know, you've got footing now. Uh, I think one thing that I've learned – uh, in this time is like being present so just enjoying that and and being present in this moment sharing it with friends and family it all comes back full circle uh, to the city where the dreams began to where I got to watch like some of my first NBA games ever and really like become a true loving diehard basketball fan and a true diehard um, just in love with the game and passionate towards the game and Devoting my ended up devoting my life to the game, so 
uh, just to have that opportunity to be with family to to, to do that is uh, it, it can be put into words really because that feeling is just so surreal. Yeah, honestly, it's probably got to be a little hard to check it too, right? Like you see and you look around and you've got this this court, like this arena that you said spawned this love of a lifelong pursuit. You've got family members, the people that are your ride or dies with you. Like, yeah, it's it's that's got to be a lot of emotions, man, to handle. Do you remember your first like, okay, I love this moment, like something from here, like Toronto, like maybe from being at a professional game, maybe a first athlete, like a first love that, like a moment you really remember coming back to this franchise? Uh, I, I would say probably like my first uh, NBA points being in that arena. Um, yeah. and, and still having a picture of that shot and pretty crazy how my career just started. And, and in a way for like for me to, to be a rookie, have rotational minutes and playing in your hometown on the first game of the season, like it's very hard to do. And I think for me, it was just like taking the time to appreciate all that I had like really fought for in terms of just getting there, just to be able to like all the reps that I put in for that shot. And I think that would be probably one of the greatest memories. Um, and then like checking in that you can hear like some of my family members just be that obnoxious family, like screaming their heads off and it's nice man like it's hard to describe because it's it's like a butterfly feeling in your stomach and there's no like true definition to describe like peace of mind and happiness and joy it just you know like it's kind of like those odors that just come out of you and it's exude and you're just so bliss I guess no, man. And you know what? It's really cool that you have that perspective already in your career, you know? And maybe there's, you know, when we're talking about, like, the cosmic effects of having you start your career in Toronto, that that's one of them, that it allowed you to maybe appreciate these moments a little bit more deeply. Like you said, having those people, your people with you in your place to start the newest part of your journey. Like, yeah, that's that's pretty special. That's pretty neat. And, yeah, like, man, you're, it, like, that's emotional. <laughs> that's really emotional stuff. Yeah, 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 I hope, yeah. Like, that's, it's a lot of profound it's a lot of deep things like yeah being able to hear your family members in an arena of that size as you're checking in on the floor at that age like you're right of course that's hard to describe um we're, I, you're a couple you're a few years younger than me so i view it as like a little generational gap too on this one because when i grew up it was like your region that was the team you cheered for were you a raptors fan growing up or because like a lot of guys your age grew up being like no no no, i'm a fan of a star and i go with the, the star of that team like were the raptors your team um it was tough because I grew up in a household that was, I guess to your point, I grew up in a household that was big on Allen Iverson. Yeah, so see? For me, I, like my family members were like just Allen Iverson fanatics, Kobe Bryant fanatics. And then yeah. you just adopted that love for those players. Um, I used to have like that dream of like, you know, one day, you know, going home and like, playing in, in that arena and those things were a lot of the motivators um i guess it was it was never like i wasn't a raptors fan if they did good i was happy i used to watch all the raptors games it was just for uh, for me and my household we grew up like fans of players and 
that's kind of what brought me into this. Yeah. So what did you wear first, Kobe's or Iverson's? I had a first Iverson jersey. But my first okay. basketball shoes were probably Kobe's. Or, like, I had yeah. a, a bunch of pairs of Kobe's. So Iverson's the first love then? You know, I, it's tough. It's tough because they were in that same era. Yeah. So uh, them being in that same era, like, watching them, I remember, like, there's times where I'm practicing all this stuff AI does, and there's times I'm practicing all this stuff um, Kobe does. And, like, I remember I used to, like, try to run like Kobe when I was a kid, but just small <laughs> things like that. I love that, man. So, again, like I mentioned, you, you got the new contract with Minnesota. And I, I was looking it up before this interview. You you were traded three times in your career already, and you played for six different head coaches. Do you, do you finally feel yeah. stable? Like, do you finally feel like you've, you've got a place, you know your role, you know that you're here? Like, you signed this deal. I know that over the offseason, like, you had a lot of conversations with Chris Finch in this front office. Like, yeah, how are you feeling right now? It's the beginning of stability for sure. Uh, just to come back to the same coach for one um, is for me something I don't think I've ever done when I think about it. Yeah, I've never come back to the same coach in a season. So that's the same offense, same uh, just system and defensive schemes, and you're not having to learn something from scratch, pick it up on the fly go and implement it against the world's best over and over and over again. You know, you get a chance to to, to practice something, master it, and then take that time and develop and develop and develop and develop and grow, and then you become something special through it. And so for me, uh, it, it's good to have that stable feeling to a degree because they've been great in communication with me, uh, finishing the relationship with me, like, he pushes me enough and he understands me as a player. Um, he really takes the time to, to, to know each guy that he's coaching and, and push them to the point that are going to get us to be a better team. And he doesn't try. It's just, I think, just right. And the whole organization, um, it's a blessing to be here and the stability is like growing each day I get more comfortable you know man like so I've had an opportunity to speak to Finch and he's been on this show before seems like just like a, a really sharp guy obviously his like uh, being a, a basketball mind that's very very clear and just yeah the even just his time in Toronto kind of like a, a legendary figure so it's, it's good that you're getting to learn under him and good that you have you know that kind of a relationship with yeah your first returning coach which is crazy to think about given your career but dude yeah. you're you're one of those guys where, okay, so like we all as, as basketball fans, as people on the outside, we've always known about like when guys go to situations where it's like a really bad fit, like either the team was just really bad and year over year they like don't get the most out of the player or it just, you know, a cultural fit probably isn't going to end up being right. But one thing that I really love about how there's a lot more player podcasts now is really understanding how important situation is for young players and how it's like there are so many talented guys in this league and if you don't get that right under opportunity under a right coach like sometimes it like 
I wouldn't say it doesn't matter how talented you are because, like, I, I think that there are some guys where it's just like, yeah, they can break through those opportunities, but there's just, like, so many guys in the league. And I think about you like this. And so I, I do wonder how, you know, you're feeling about your game specifically, like how this is going to be adding to your confidence to know, like, you were wanted by an organization and that you do have this role with an organization. Honestly, it's just a lot of self-reflection, self-validation, and confidence. The ones that stick around believe in themselves the most, and the game is a lot more mental at the professional level than it is uh, anywhere else. And I would say, after being in the league and understanding that this is a business, for me, I feel great about my game because I've relied on the process now. I don't rely on being told from this person or that person or reading blogs or, you know, getting the, the, the fan love and not to be disrespectful, you, you, appreciate those, you appreciate those who support you for sure, 100%. But for me, uh, I'm starting to, like, really find peace in how hard I work and trust and believe in my abilities. And I got here for a reason. And I'm still here, even though I've been bounced around and been traded a few times. Like, I'm still here. And each time you get traded, that means another team sees value in you. So, I think for me, it's just about staying confident, trusting my work each and every day, and continuing to work each and every day. And that's not going to stop for me. And the sky's the limit, honestly. Uh, I've learned that you go as far as your beliefs, and I'll continue to believe in myself as much as I can and believe in God and allow him to, to open doors for me, which he always has in my life. Well, you shot the hell out of the ball for Team Canada this summer and you played really spectacular perimeter defense. How, how much of that experience like, has helped you roll into this year? A lot. I think the, the role that I played with Team Canada is a role I see myself playing this year, uh, back up point being on ball, uh, making plays, and then making shots, you know, just being a playmaker, being a defender. And when I need to, trusting my strengths and my work and knocking down shots, I think for me it's just each day evolving to become more well-rounded and being that, like, Swiss Army Knight, that, that vital piece. Man, it must have been fun showing up to the team. And it's just like, Anthony Edwards beat you. Rudy Gobert beat you. Like, you know, just going through the team. Like, it's nice for Canada to have bragging rights against you guys. Man, you guys beat Spain, USA, and France. Yeah. Yeah. Feels I, good. Honestly, you know, like, those are three obviously respected and tough teams to play against and have historically done well at that level so for us to make history for Canada another blessing another dream come true and again like another door that God has opened for me and I made the most out of the opportunity yeah, hey, listen, I know you're focusing on the NBA season now, right? Like, this is your professional career now. But I, I do want to go back there for a second because, dude, for so long, people were just dying to see NBA players play for this team. And then all of a sudden, you know, so many of you guys end up committing. And, and I, I wonder if you can kind of pinpoint a moment where you felt like that really changed. 
because, yeah, there's there's 26 Canadians in the NBA now. There's actually 28 because they don't count Boucher and Duarte who are, you know, Canadians. Like 28. We're, we're at the point now where, you know, you're looking at it and guys are talking about wanting to play for the team and you're like, ah, oh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe this guy actually doesn't make the team. Do you remember like a moment specifically over the last year where you felt like, oh, damn, like this is really happening. Guys are really going to be doing this. This is for real now. I think probably last summer. A lot of guys made that commitment. It feels either last summer or the summer before that, everyone decided that we're going to band together, you know, make that commitment and try to do something special and something we've never done before as a country and to represent. Canada best you can. Yeah, dude, uh, again, it's it's really exciting, right? Like, I don't know, that game was yep. early, early, early in the morning for me. I was uh, extremely hungover at a friend's cottage, and I still woke up and watched it on my phone. And I will say that when Bridges hit that shot, it was one of the lowest feelings I've had as a sports fan. I, I, <laughs> I thought it Man, it was so bad. I was like, listen, I already have the hangover. I don't need this as well. Like, I can't believe that this is happening. But then you guys gutted it out in overtime. And I just thought that was such a cool Canadian sports moment because I thought that one of the identities of your team was toughness. Like, that you guys were a tough team. There were some really difficult moments in that tournament, and you guys just kept finding ways to overcome it. And, And I wonder, yeah, how you felt that in that moment after that shot as you guys were preparing to go to an overtime against, the the, like, the greatest basketball country in the planet? Uh, I think the game wasn't over, and we were right there about to win. We we believed in ourselves the entire time that we can win, and I think just upon that time, it was – just time to go do it again for five more minutes. So, yeah, we were up the whole game, and it was nothing for us to to make adjustments or to, to, like, in that time, you have to want it. And for us, we wanted it. We wanted the medal. We didn't devote our time, you know, come so far just to come so far. And we committed, and I think it's going into those last five minutes, everyone's mindset was just on winning and what do I need to do to help the team win? Man, uh, if you, like, you know, you talked about the importance of your your mentals as you go further in your career and how much of this is a mental game, what you do, and there's no greater difference between, like, a talk, like a, a podcast host, me, and a professional athlete, you, where your mentality in that moment is like, hey, we all played them all game. We just got to go out there and pull it out versus me in bed watching it going, I can't believe this is happening full of panic and dread, you know, just having a meltdown and believing that it was like that we were cooked. It's just the the exact opposite, uh, exact opposite approach to this thing. So, yeah, man, you guys do win this thing. It's an awesome moment for Canada. And, yeah, I think that it, it really has caused a, a massive change towards the way that people look at this program. I think that the way that you guys carried yourself this summer was incredible. Like, it was so – it was just awesome, awesome, awesome to watch. And, again, 28 Canadians in the NBA now. You're one of them. Uh, I know a lot of people are proud of you. Before you go, though, I do have to ask you, do you think Dylan Brooks is misunderstood? Because I said after you guys won that bronze that he has immunity now from Canadian basketball fans. Like, nobody criticizes him here. But do you think that there's something about him that is misunderstood by the general public? I would say, yeah, being around him, great dude, loves the game, super nice guy, very chill, funny, good, like, we hung out all the time as a team, and he's a funny guy, and not as intense, 
off the court, but that's just the love for the game, you know, it'll bring that out of you. So to me, I would say he's definitely misunderstood. Yeah, I, I again, I, it did really seem like you guys were a tight-knit team, and it worked out. And, yeah, now people can't wait. And, again, man, congrats on the contract. Congrats on finally being in a situation where, you know, you're, you feel really good. And, yeah, I know a lot of people up here are excited to keep watching you. So congrats on this, man, and, and good luck this season. Thanks for your time. No problem. Have a good one. Take care, man. There goes Akil Alexander-Walker, Timberwolves, and Team Kandegard. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. All right, I absolutely love this guy's show. If there's one show that gets shared amongst the group the most, it's it's foul territory. Like, we're constantly swapping it back. And producers, the hosts, everybody's just, like, on this thing. Anyways, Eric Kratz, former MLB catcher, host of Foul Territory, and author of Tal of a Backup Catcher. What's up, brother? How we doing? How we doing, JD? What a, what a what a what a music you had on the intro there. Yeah, it's, uh, we got good guys. You know, they they pick out they pick out good songs. It's pretty much all they're good for. Absolutely. But yeah, you know, it's, they they got their one thing real down. I'm sure they got I'm sure they got a few extra qualities. But I mean, that's <laughs> that's a good good Friday Friday vibe right there. Yeah, it was. It was a good Friday vibe. Dude, so, yeah, you were drafted by the Jays. Uh, I know, you know, you were here in 2014. Like, it was a grind to get up here in 2014. But I got to know, I read that you lived in the Rogers Center Hotel for a while. Like, how long were you there? <laughs> Did you have your family? Like, how, how long was that experience? How was that experience? So, the experience wasn't very long. And mostly because it wasn't, it wasn't like... It was super cool. Like, to say you live in the stadium is super cool. It was probably, I want to say, three to four days. But it was one of those things that I didn't make. I didn't make the team until the day day before the season opened, and we opened in Tampa. So I was down there, and then you're you're thinking, okay, i got to find a place. Well, I'm finding a place in AAA already because they told me they fired me and sent me to AAA after spring training, and then they – decided to rehire me and bring me up to the big leagues. And so it was one of those things that I told my wife, I'm like, Hey, you're going to be up there for the first eight game homestand. Like we could just stay in the Rogers center and we'll look for, we'll look for a, you know, we'll look for an apartment somewhere because apartments in Toronto, I'm sure they haven't changed. You know, you pay an arm and a leg. And when you don't make, when you don't make the big league, you know, what everybody thinks people make in the big leagues, yeah, paying five grand a month is expensive. Yeah, dude. Especially when you've been grinding in the minors year over year. They must have. Did you get help? Like, did you get a real estate agent that went, "Hey, here's what you can afford," and you went, "Oh, I got to live in a basement apartment with my whole family <laughs> rather than because you." <laughs> I wanted to stay at the hotel. I told them. I told them my. I told them my budget, and they were like, "Are you gonna stay in?" Toronto or where yeah. you stay? They're like saying like <laughs> Mississauga, all this stuff. So we got a rate. We got a rate for the hotel in the stadium, yeah. and then we're in the we're in the hotel, and I'm like, oh my gosh, because they're nice rooms. They're yeah. just they're just too small for a family yeah. of five, and so we're yeah. like, we can't do this. We have to get out now. And yeah. fortunately, we found a place within walking distance, which was nice because my wife didn't want to drive a mile to the stadium that would have taken like 35 minutes with traffic. So yeah. it was perfect. It was perfect. Uh, dude, 
I, I cannot think of a place I would let want to be less than living at work. It's different when you I guess you're you're living like this was your dream come true, right? You again yeah. grinding away in the minors year after year after year, and then all of a sudden you get a call to the big leagues. You're probably thrilled to be there, but I can't think of a fate worse than death than if they went, Hey JD, when the the day is done, you gotta overlook the studio. You know, you gotta go to your room and there's gonna be four other people in a tight little cramped room and and you gotta look over the studio and, and see your mics and see when you got to get back to work. But I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, and I'm glad that you guys ended up finding a place because, yeah, my God, I don't know how people do it in the city. So uh, I want to have you on today because I want to talk about uh, Gabriel Moreno. And I, like I said, I really do think that your show is becoming an authority on the sport. I think you guys do a really great job of bringing in player perspective, but also balancing that with some real reality. But yeah, man, you were a, you were a catcher. You wrote the, the book, The Towel of a Backup Catcher. Gabriel Moreno is killing Blue Jays fans. Like, it's just, it's, it's painful. He's, this is one of the, I'm not, I'm not even joking. This is one of the worst things that's happened in this city. And like, you were actually a part of a bad trade for the Blue Jays because they, they dealt Liam Hendricks and you for Danny Valencia. And yeah, Liam Hendricks went on to have a, a better career. But yeah, I, I don't even know where to begin with this. It's just like, what do you like most about Moreno? Because uh, I, I know we're not going to get solace from this, but can you believe the Blue Jays gave this guy up? Um, today, can I believe it? No. <laughs> when they did the trade, yes. And I don't. I'm, I'm going to give. I'm going to give Toronto fans some hope here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There is a value. There is a value in what Dalton Varsho brings. Now, when they when sure. they turn the scoreboard on, and it says, it says he's hitting two whatever he hit. I get that. Yes, yeah. I understand. That's that's hard to watch or hard to see. But what he brings to a team. His base running ability, which sounds super remedial, but it is so important, is unbelievable. He is a super athletic fielder who's technically he's a catcher. When I played with him, he was a catcher. And so his versatility over the next four years when he's still going to be a Blue Jay is going to be huge. And if you can get 39 war out of a player that you traded for super awesome if i were to say if i were to say that gabriel um that lordy scoriel would have had a three war and would have been an all-star this year i would have told you you were a liar i would have taken the under good player unlocked something in that lineup because of whatever it is you know a more comfortable situation, whatever it is, you know, his, his poor defense and base running is not as exemplified when you have a whole team that runs really well. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like having a team, a guy that can't hit on a team that rakes, you know, he's not a great, he's not very athletic. So when you're on a team like the blue Jays who weren't athletic last year, you know, it was kind of like, Hey, we need to change that. So to me, there's an upgrade there, clearly an upgrade from Dalton Varsho. But to give, give away Gabriel Moreno, what he does behind the dish is awesome. Like, he, is, he, is, he can throw, he can catch, he can block, and he's hitting really well this year, too. I talked to John Schneider before, before John Schneider was John Schneider manager of the big league team. 
And he was telling me the catching coordinator was telling me all about this guy. And then Sal Fasano, who used to work for the Blue Jays, yep. saw him in the minor leagues when he was working for the Braves but was doing some minor league stuff. Like, I saw, heard and saw so much stuff about this guy. Oh, when I was working for the Red Sox, too. The catching coordinator for the Red Sox saw this guy, and he's like, big league starting catcher. So, to get rid of him, that's tough. That's tough. I don't see – I don't see – you don't see a lot of big league starting catchers, guys that are going to play 125 to 140 games that get dealt. Now, if it would have been straight up for Dalton Varsho, I would have said, hey, the Blue Jays have two really good catchers. I think, Dan, I think Danny Jansen's going to have a way better career than Alejandro Kirk is, but Alejandro Kirk was coming off an all-star season too. So you're looking at what you had when you made the trade. I didn't hate it. I'll be honest, I didn't hate it. There was a huge upgrade there, but – I would. It would have been tough for me to get rid of Gabriel Moreno for anything less than Dalton Varsho. Here's the thing. Um, yeah, Varsho's fine player, and all those things that you referenced are true because yeah, he still has that near four WAR despite hitting you know for a six seventy four OPS. Like the guy was barely <laughs> over the Mendoza line this season. So like yeah, he yep. does those other things extremely well. I think the issue is is that when they traded for Varsho, when he first showed up here in Toronto, he he started in the four hole. And, and they thought that they were getting the best of all these worlds, right? And that's the only way that you can justify trading a Gabriel Moreno, someone who everybody within your system is telling you, hey, this guy's a stud. By the way, thank you for reminding me of Sal Fasano and making me think of his duster because that's just like an all-time mustache, right? Like all-time – if we're talking about like style points for a guy, like a baseball player, like Sal Fasano, very high, high, high on the list for me. But anyways, back to the bar show thing. It's just he, – he's – they, they need him to be the bat that I don't think he is. So it's great that he's all the other stuff. It's just, man, you know this game, it's easier to acquire defense. It's easier to acquire base running than it is to acquire, you know, that that guy that's the all-around player that he thought he was going to be. And that's the issue that I have about losing to Moreno is he's not just a glove man, right? Behind the dish, he's not just a big arm. He doesn't have just the incredible pop time. It's like he's got the bat-to-ball skills of, like, someone that is not a catcher. And I, I just... I guess this is it, is people keep going, hey, are you, how do you judge the trade? It's got to be five years from now. I think that's fair. But do you see any part of his game right now that he's showcasing in the playoffs that isn't sustainable to you? Like, do you feel like right now he's punching well above his weight? Uh, I don't think he's punching above his weight. I think this is who he is. I think yeah. this is who Gabriel Moreno is. I think his I, – I, to me, you know – as a as a young catcher, the things that you are afraid of in regression type of stuff is lack of character, lack of ability to connect. And this guy has he has all of that and more. Like he's he's bilingual. He is a leader, but he's also a humble leader. So I don't see regression from him. But what I do see is a huge uptick in what Dalton Varsho did this year. I see it, and I don't think people understand the connection of having a successful hitting season, a successful offensive season, and everybody around you having a successful season. Hmm. When he becomes the Blue Jays' sixth hitter 
and has an OPS of 805 next year, with all the stuff that he does, you are going to feel tremendous about this trade. Because, honestly, Vladimir Guerrero and Dante Bichette and George Springer, those are the dudes. Like, those are the guys. And when those guys don't hit, now all of a sudden, as a pitcher, as a catcher, you're making a game plan to face a Dalton Varsho. And you're like, oh, I'm not going to let him beat me. And then he struggled. He got off to a slower start. But when, it, when you get off to a slow start offensively and you still do what he did defensively and running the bases, it shows that he's available. He is, he is ready for a bounce-back season. And then if I were to guess, I would say his OPS next year is above 790. That's good. That's a good guess. And, and honestly, that's where he needs to be to comfort people, right? Because yep. of what, what yep. they're seeing with Moreno. And listen, this is what uh, – it's kind of heartbreaking with Varsho here because all those things that you mentioned, he's, he's just – he's clearly a gamer, right? He, he doesn't take time off. He's just he, – he clearly just loves baseball. He's the type of guy that would be a massive fan favorite here if he could just, yes, have the – man, honestly, if he could just have the OPS over 750, it, it, would, it would be enough for people here because of all the other stuff, the intangibles. He's not afraid to run into the wall, you know, lay, lay out on that crappy Roger Center AstroTurf. Like, he's, he's a fearless <laughs> player. He's a good base runner. Like, all these things, he's doing it right. It's just that he got traded for the, the buy bilingual 23-year-old leader with years of control who keeps, you know, getting like his barrel like just perfectly on baseballs, drives in a winning run in a game seven. Like it's just – it's the worst time. It's the worst time. So, yeah, I I do wonder about the pressure that's going to be on Varsho next year too, right? Like he's thinking – damn, I got off to this tough start. I was this big trade acquisition. Uh, they put me in the four-hole. I'm not a four-hole guy. That's not fair to me. But now everyone's talking about me all offseason because the guy I was traded for is a bona fide stud and flat out, like, there's a there's a scenario where he wins World Series MVP. There is, for sure. But there's also a scenario where a Dalton Varsho can step up when the Blue Jays offense doesn't choke in the postseason. Like, he'll step up and be that World Series. This is a World Series team, and Dalton Varsha will be a huge part of it for the Blue Jays next year. Mm-hmm. Man, that's, that's a good way to go. Before you go, I need you to sell this World Series to baseball fans outside of Texas and Arizona. You were breaking up there, Hank. Right? Come again. I said, before you go... Tell me how yep. you would sell this World Series to baseball fans outside of Texas and Arizona. You're seeing the two best teams right now. And if you don't like it, because your team blew it, whether it was a Philly fan, <laughs> whether it was a Astro fan, whether it was the yeah. Dodgers or Braves, we have too much we have too much of a society of like, oh well, I did so good. So yeah. I should get I should be in the the final game. Oh, okay, Jimmy. We'll just go ahead and put you in the final game. No, yeah. you know what? This team pitches. They don't have the stud pitchers, but you know who they have? They have dudes that step up and execute. And I think it's a huge, huge step forward for baseball, while Fox is going to say, oh, we don't like this matchup. This matchup is just not good for ratings. This matchup is great for baseball because it needs to tell other teams who are like, well, I just don't. We're a small market. We can't compete. No, it's about getting in. And when you get in, (laughs) 
ain't nobody taking that dance card away from you. Dude, you know, it's it, like I, I mentioned as you were coming on how we share clips from your show a lot. The one that got shared from me to like 18 other people was you guys talking about the Rangers, the message to baseball of do something, like go out and spend the money, make a splash, make a trade. That That's the one for me that I'm hoping resonates is, yes, be the team that does something. Be the team that has a little bit of bochi where it's, hey, fine, analytics is a part of the sport, blah, 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 but also have some conviction to do what you think is right. And, yeah, I, I personally, I like this World Series. It's just, yeah, it's a little tougher because our only narrative connection here in Toronto is um, you either cheer for the Rangers, who you were bred to hate in 2015-16, or you cheer for uh, Moreno to potentially win a World Series MVP or Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Um, yeah, last thing, should Mad Dog Russo retire? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny. It's so good. It's one of my favorite stories around this. I told, I said yesterday that he needs to double down on this and just show up, keep showing up at these events and keep doubting the, keep doubting the Diamondbacks. But, yeah, I love it. Uh, hey, Eric, thanks for making time, man. I know you're busy. I hope we do this again soon, brother. JD, anytime, man. I appreciate you giving me a shout-out. Yeah, congrats, man. Uh, yeah, it's a great show. Host of Foul Territory, author of The Towel, of a backup catcher, a uh, guy who was here for a couple seasons, guy who, yeah, I thought he lived in the Rogers Center Hotel for a little bit longer. Um, but, yes, I'd, I think, yeah, you can get a rate on that Rogers Center Hotel. You're downtown. You probably want that even more than, yeah, whatever condo you're going to move into with four other people. My God. I don't know how some people do it in the city. I'm, I'm like, you go to some places, and it's two grand a month for some cramped quarters. It's kind of you got to have a roommate two-bedroom-ish place with a tiny bathroom. It's a nightmare here. Like, truly, truly, truly a nightmare. Anyway, I like getting a Kratz's perspective on that trade, and I think it's one that we're all trying to keep. I'm not as bullish as him on getting a 800-plus OPS season from Varsho. Like, I just think when you look at everything as a whole... um. Yeah, it's it's it it doesn't paint that it it doesn't paint, really paint that picture. Maybe maybe it does, but yeah, his career high for a season on OPS was 95 games where he was 755. It was 745 the year before when the Jays traded for him, and yeah, uh, it's when he had seven more home runs than he had even last year. So, do I think that he's going to turn around? Do I think he's going to have a better season? Yes, I do. But this this is actually a point of curiosity for me moving forward with him. I think that he's the type of guy who can compartmentalize and get rid of it, but he started the season ice cold and it was clearly wearing on him. And I wonder going into next year, how much of this conversation carrying over is going to weigh on him. Like I, I joked with Ennis yesterday in good hour. Hey, uh, do you think that Shapiro and Atkins have these private moments where they're like, damn it. I can't believe another base hit for Moreno. This is just, let this story die. Let this go away. Let us get a break from this. But ultimately, they're removed from it. They, 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 they actually get the benefit of time. They're, they get to, what, get to hear from Ross Atkins at the winter meetings? Who cares? Shapiro's going to be gone. You're not going to see Shapiro until we get the first broadcast and he's talking about the new renovations to the Rogers Center that are going to be happening. And then goodbye. You, you're not going to see him for a while. They're going to have the benefit of the time. They're going to have the benefit of the sample size, all of those different things. For Dalton's show, it's basically like he shows up for his second season with the Blue Jays with 
a, a similar level of discomfort as the first where the expectation was he was the four-hole hitter and he was the new splashy acquisition. There's a lot of pressure on his shoulders. He started out slow. And then it's going to be coming into this season. Hey, it's the same thing. You've got to really up your game. People aren't expecting maybe as much offensively, so there's that. But you're the guy that potentially was traded for hopefully the World Series MVP for my wallet. Anyways, everybody have a great weekend. Subscribe to this podcast. Leave five stars. Do all those things. Subscribe to Leafs Talk so you can get that Saturday night after the Predators game. And we will see you next Monday. Back with Brady Quinn and Christopher Stieg.